Welcome back to another edition of SOS School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello, joined by Adam and Chris once again. And guys, start off. How are you guys doing today? Uh, well, I can't really complain, can we? Uh, the Fulham results a, a week or so ago aside, Everton are fun now. Is that right? Is that <laughs> well, what as you you might recall, if if you looked at my uh, predictions post for this week, it would it would be awful if Everton were to have lost to Fulham last week in some catastrophic breakdown of any semblance of quality or cohesion. But it's a good thing that that definitely never happened, so it's fine. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Everton have won what's it five straight now, right? Uh, yeah, because well, we just clean didn't sheets. play Fulham last week. Never exactly. happened. Craven mm-hmm. Cottage didn't never see us. Nope. Not a thing. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah, no, I think it's safe to say that we can, that, that one never happened, erased from memory. Uh, you know, some people may believe it happened, but after this result, you know, it made things feel a little bit better, at least. Uh, you know, uh, as, you know, if you've watched the game or you probably know by now because it's probably been, you know, it's been a- around the world. Um, you know, as, you know, Everton beat, Manchester United for nothing, very handily. Um, as as Pogba um, mentioned today, it was just uh, it was an, it was embarrassing in some senses. Uh, I forget what his exact words words were in that uh, comment, but he was not happy with the team's performance. Um, well, what and- I took away from this this match was that Adrissa Gay is better than Paul Pogba. I don't know about you guys, but the mm-hmm. I mean. You can run, you, you still run the Twitter account for this, right? So you can deal with all the angry comments about that yourself. Yeah, I'm just gonna put up all the Manchester United hashtags I can think of and and just watch the comments. Okay, as long as you're the one that has to handle that, that's fine with me. I, I have no comment on that. (laughs) (laughs) Do, do not at Adam. Mm-mm, no, I will. I won't answer. Is the thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be with you there on that one, Adam. Not not sure I would answer the, those either. But let's get into this game a little bit. As I mentioned, four nothing in, in our favor, and you know, so much of the coverage after this match was about how bad Manchester United was, and it seems like this happens every week. You know, every time we beat a top six team, it's how bad Chelsea was, how bad Arsenal was, how bad Man United was. How much do we think this was about a bad performance from United yesterday at time of recording because we're recording here on Monday night rather than a good performance from Everton, or is that even the case at all? I I, I think, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from someone we won't mention, two things can be true, right? <laughs> yes, two <laughs> things can be true. <laughs> Manchester United were just flat-out garbage in this game, and – but to Everton's credit, they took advantage, and they they didn't mess around. They didn't leave it to chance. They put United to the sword, and that's something that we haven't seen in recent years, and it was really nice that they did that because, you know, for even in the middle part of the season and going back to the first part of the season against top six teams, that kind of thing was not happening. So it's it's a real uh, it's a real change. Yeah, you know, and I think that, that uh, as you've, pointed out it, it was a similar to an extent conversation after Everton beat, beat Chelsea and beat Arsenal and I mean we've talked about all three of those clubs here uh, at length at, at various times uh, because they are um, flawed that you know they are still top six clubs and and they've got the talent that 
that makes that the case, but they are obviously teams that still have significant, significant flaws. And the fact that Everton has become a team in the last month and a half that, that plays a, a style and, and plays co- with the consistency to draw out the flaws in those teams, which is primarily that they've got really good attackers and their midfield and defenses are questionable at, at best. You know, we saw a different setup from United than, than we did from Arsenal, which was a different one than we saw from Chelsea. But I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the story is the same. It's, it's midfields that have one guy of, of quality and everybody else who's kind of eh, and defenses that are questionable. And when you have Idrissa Gay in your midfield, just wrecking shit all the time. Uh, if you don't have a midfielder uh, that can counter that, you're going to have problems. And Arsenal did and Chelsea did. And now Manchester United did too. So, yeah, to to echo what Chris said to start, uh, two things can be true. United did put in a bad performance, but nothing that United did Sunday was substantially different than what United has been under Skullshar, which is, you know, that they can get at you, but if they've run into problems in the midfield or in defense, well... They have they Phil have Jones, Jones and Nemanja Matic and Fred, and that's bad. Uh, shout out to Chris Smalling, too, uh, for just absolutely watching Gilfie Sigurdsson's goal along with Matic. That was, that was great. I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, not not great defense on there. But, I mean, they, you know, like you guys have said, you know, there were, there was a good 10 minutes in that game, I think, in the, in the second, second half, half, that United just – was passing the ball out of bounds. Um, so it, it was definitely, um, it was definitely a little interesting, uh, to see just how bad they were, um, how bad they were yesterday. But I think we also played very, very well. Well, and I, yeah, and I think the, the four goals for me kind of are, they belie what actually happened in this match. Um, because you look at the, the scoreline and think, wow, Everton were, had a really good attacking match. Whereas the reality is that Everton's midfield and their defensive personnel absolutely stifled United from the word go, and it never let up until until the final whistle. And I think that's really the story of what happened here, more than Gilfie Sickardson and Luca Digne scoring goals that are largely considered to be unlikely. Um, the we we conceded zero point three xg, and none of those shots that United got, which. Adam, refresh my memory. I don't think they had a shot on target until maybe the 75th minute or somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, that's about right. And Kurt Zuma and Michael Keane and Morgan Schneiderlin and Andrissa Gay were just absolutely dominant. And that's something you may or may not realize when you look at the final score. Well, yeah, and, you know, the the the, the, uh, the finishing pixies will be, you know, what they are. Uh, finishing is weird and, you know – Weird stuff happens, uh, such that you get a match like Everton had against Arsenal where they were, you know, absolutely dominant from start to finish and could easily have had three goals and probably were better value to win against Arsenal 4-0 than, uh, than they were against United this weekend. But, you know, when you play as well defensively in both of those matches as they did, all you really got to do is get one. And I think even, even if this had been like the Arsenal match where 
we only got the early goal and and failed to convert later chances. Much like that match, I don't think I would have been real tense coming up to the end of this one with only a one-goal lead because it just never felt like United was going to be able to get through the midfield on any you know anything resembling a consistent basis to create quality chances. Yeah, and uh, you know we talk about the defense, and it's you know I you remember at during that time where we were just you know on that losing streak where where nothing seemed to be going right, and you know it, a lot of the the problems were defensively we're talking about zonal marking, and a lot of those things still haven't been completely solved, but it's a nice refreshing sight to see such a dominating performance from the spine of that that midfield from the spine of that spine of the team right there. Uh, in the middle of the field with the two center backs, and then, of course, Gay and Schneiderlin, as it was yesterday. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that we, to an extent, you know, because there was a stretch where they, they conceded a lot of goals, um, you know, I, I think that, that there's a temptation to say that the defense has improved. You know, and I, I think that the reality is that the open play defense pretty much all season, with the exception of a game against Tottenham in which Idrissa Gay didn't play, uh, has been pretty good, consistently pretty good. And what has let the team down much more frequently has been the set-piece defense. They've cleaned that up in the last, you know, six weeks. I don't even think against Fulham that I, uh, those either of those goals came on uh, a set-piece, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh so now that we've seen that get kind of cleaned up, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, no, no, this team actually can just defend, period. And that's a massive improvement over what we saw last season. Yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned Morgan Schneiderlin. He was uh, in the game, started yesterday, uh, ahead of Tom Davies, James McCarthy, to play, to replace uh, Andre Gomez, who was suspended um, after last week's game. And, you know, Adam, we'll go to you again just uh, real quick before we head back to Chris. How do we think he performed, and, and do we expect him to remain ahead of those players as we move to Crystal Palace and Burnley to finish off Gomez's uh, suspension? Um, I, I frankly was a little bit surprised that he did get the start. I have always been a Morgan Schneiderlin de- defender, and I, you know, continue to be as such. Um, but because so much of what Silva has looked to do has been about midfield pressure, um, which generally means that the midfielders have to be able to, you know, move. Um, I, I was expecting either McCarthy or Davis to get the start over Schneiderlin. Um, they did not. And I thought that Schneiderlin was still fine. He's, he's not overly mobile. Um, and you have to know that, that going in, but playing next to Adrissa Gay can cover a lot of mobility shortcomings. And he's the same player that, that he's always been. He's going to sit in a little bit behind Gay. He's going to position himself well so that he doesn't have to cover a lot of ground. He's going to be pretty good in terms of retaining possession and just lets everybody else who's around him do their job more easily because they know he's going to position himself correctly. He's going to do the little things right, and he's going to keep keep the team ticking forward. Um, I, 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 I think he probably makes more sense uh, 
in against Palace and Burnley than, than Davis or McCarthy do again, because he's a little bit better in possession. Um, and you know, we're going to talk about the Palace game later, but you would anticipate that both of those teams are going to come out to play a lot more defense than United did, than, than Arsenal and Chelsea, uh, have. And it's going to be important to have somebody, uh, in the holding midfield area who's going to be able to retain the ball a little bit more, um, than, than maybe those other guys would. I think the best thing that you can say about Morgan Schneiderlin is that I did not notice him really at all yesterday. And it's, it's kind of like a hockey defenseman in that that's a good thing to say. He did not make any mistakes. The team conceded very few chances, as we already mentioned. Um, he kept, he led Everton in passes completed and passes attempt. Very few of them were backwards. Um, he, you know, he really does keep the side ticking over. And as, as Adam mentioned just a minute ago, against Palace who are going to sit deep and Burnley who are going to sit really deep. I, I'd rather have somebody who's confident on the ball than uh, more of the headless chicken approach that Davis or McCarthy brings. Yeah. And, you know, we know what, what Ghana is good with and, uh, and not necessarily as good with, and he is going to go out there and win you the ball, uh, especially, you know, against Palace, against Burnley, who, you know, maybe the, best central midfielder of the bunch is Luka Milivojevic in at, at, at Palace and I mean and his double digit goal total with uh, all of those penalties <laughs> he's he's certainly not Paul Pogba he's not N'Golo Conte he's not even Aaron Ramsey um so definitely I I think Schneiderlin I don't know if if Playing the the high pressing style that I would have necessarily picked Schneiderlin um, the way that that Silva did this weekend, but I think definitely going forward into the next two weeks, uh, I would probably lean toward him to play alongside Ghana. Absolutely. Yeah, I think he played uh, well yesterday, and you know, again, like you said, you know, when you're not noticing a player in the middle of that field, someone who's typically has a lot of defensive duties, that's normally a good thing, and um, I, I think you know. A lot of it is towards the end of the season where, you know, surprisingly in a little bit of a, uh, in a little bit of a, a race here to see if we could possibly qualify for Europa. Um, if uh, Manchester City ends up winning the FA Cup. Um, and you know, I, I think you go with the consistency moving forward. Um, while Gomes is out, I think he proved himself enough uh, in that game. But now you look at Everton after this game and they've now beaten three top six teams. A half decent West Ham side, uh, over the past month. But, you know, they also had the loss to Fulham, uh, last week that, you know, we would all love to forget about. Uh, but, you know, let's talk about that and then what, and then this United performance, uh, um, coming after that. What happened in the Fulham game? And Chris will go to you on this. What happened? And does this United you know, United game erase any of that memory? I wish that I could tell you what happened in that match. Um, it, it's it's one that is very difficult to kind of go back and analyze just because it was so inexplicably terrible. And the second part of the question is a little bit more interesting to me. And I think that the Manchester United match does not erase the memory of the Fulham match. But if you view the United match in the prism of the Arsenal game, the Chelsea game, and the West Ham game, I think the collective is a lot more instructive of those matches. It's a lot more constructive than the result that happened at Fulham, if that makes sense. I, you know, 
good teams have bad days. And while losing to Fulham is particularly bad and it, nobody really enjoyed that, I am hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm just hard-pressed to be as upset about that now as I was when it happened. Yeah, and, and I think that I, I think that the next two weeks will tell us a lot about what that Fulham match really was. Because if, if we want to kind of extend our, our view on this good run of form, uh, which, you know, we kind of think about as, as at the Chelsea match, you know, you, you can probably extend that a little bit farther if you want and, and go back to the Cardiff match at the end of February where Everton won 3-0. The next week they get a nil-nil pretty evenly contested match um, against Liverpool. And then they go up 2-0 against Newcastle. The next week, and then there's a complete capitulation in a 20-minute period in the second half of that match. And, and you really <laughs> shout take, out Jordan Pickford. Yeah, you you take 20 minutes from that Newcastle match and the 90 from from Fulham, and you're looking at you know three, five, seven, eight games in that that span where they've looked good for all of but about 110 minutes of it against some bad teams, against some good teams. Um, so, so I, there's, there's a temptation, I think, to say, you know, oh, it, it was just a bad day and what have you. Um, I am interested to see because most of, of what Everton has done well in that kind of shorter span that we think about going back to that Chelsea match, um, has been based on teams trying to come at Everton through the midfield, uh, and Everton, applying pressure, forcing mistakes, and, and going quick the other way. Everton wants to play direct. They want to play through their wingers. They want to get the ball in wide. They want to get it to the fullbacks, and, and they want to work from there. If if you're playing against a team like Fulham was, who was very content to knock the ball long toward the head of Alexander Mitrovic, to knock the ball wide, to let Ryan Babel chase it in behind, Ryan Babel in this, the year of our Lord 2019, um, that, that creates a different situation and we still have not seen with consistency this year Everton able to break those teams down and and to come out with a coherent approach as to how how they're going to face that kind of team um and I think that that Palace is kind of a, a little bit like Fulham in that sense they're obviously much more defensively sound on the whole but they played Christian Benteke uh, this week against Arsenal and Benteke scored, which is <laughs> miracles never cease, man. Yeah. So you know, I think if you're thinking about the the threat that Mitrovic and Babel posed against Fulham, I think that that Palace can kind of bring some of the same that thunder and lightning approach with with Benteke and Zaha. So it'll be very interesting to me to see in a match that I think is somewhat similar to the Fulham match if Everton can bounce back. And if they do, then you look back at that Fulham match and you say, you know, whatever it was, it happened. It's over. If it something of a repeat performance, then you have a, a, a real significant trend that flies very much in the face of good performances against much better teams. And then you got to start thinking about, okay, what is really going on here? Well, this is the big question um, headed into the off season for me, at least, and has been the big question throughout this season is that Marco Silva's plan A 
as you mentioned on the website today, Adam, is pretty good and sometimes even great. And, you know, that plan A is competitive up and down the table when teams play according to what he expects them to play. The real issue is what happens then. And I, I know I'm stealing your bit to some extent, but I think it's worth talking about that the fatal flaw of this team is not even set-piece defending. It's what happens when you get hit in the mouth by something you're not expecting. Well, and I, I think I think that that is definitely part of, of the issue. But I also think that nothing that Fulham threw at Everton, that, that Newcastle threw at Everton, that Watford threw at Everton should have come a, as a substantial surprise so it's it's more the case that it is an inconvenience because Marco Silva knows and we've got the results now really to prove it that if if you play the way that Marco Silva wants you to play you're going to have problems playing this Everton team now if Marco Silva is surprised that every team does not play him the way that he wants them to play him well he can be surprised that makes him a moron if he thinks that you know uh, Fulham and Watford and Newcastle are going to play in the same way that Manchester United and Arsenal do. He should get his head checked. Um, but we still have not seen a consistent uh, ability to alter the game plan to match up against any other <laughs> type of opponent or approach. And I think that is ultimately what you're, you're speaking to. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily that it's the unexpected so much as just like, oh, some teams, you know, want to play direct or want to bunker and counter us. And how do we respond when that happens? Yeah, and I, I, I don't believe uh, you guys mentioned this. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, I mean, if you look at the games that we have won over the past, I believe it's eight games since we played Cardiff. Every single one of the games that we've won, we have not allowed a goal. And the two games that we did um, that we did lose, we we allowed goals in. Uh, so you know, good defensively there as well. And it's you know, it's nice to see. But again, you guys are right in saying that you know, not only it's really not even even just uh, playing the teams like that like to go direct like the Fulhams. But also playing on the road, you know, we've been very mm-hmm. solid here since um, the Liverpool match. In playing, we played four top six teams at home, I believe, and and all four three wins and a draw. <laughs> yeah, and three wins and a draw. We go to the road. You have losses against teams like Newcastle and Fulham. It'll be nice to see if Everton can respond to that on the road and beat a team like Crystal Palace and, and show us, uh, I guess, that sort of consistency. Come home to Burnley, uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, yeah, or come home to Burnley and then uh, hit the road again one more time before the end of the season against Tottenham. Um, it'll definitely be an interesting end of the season. And, you know, there's only three ma- three matches left now, and I think it's a good time now to transition into talking a little bit about the off season. You know, um, we may have the opportunity that, to play in the Europa League come uh, next year, but Let's think about it as if we're not in the Europa League. Let's think about the transfer window that is before us as if we did not make the Europa League and we only have Premier League to play with. And let's start with looking at some of the questions that we have to answer. And I think one of the first questions should be in the spine of that, uh, in the spine of that defense, the spine of that field. 
Uh, how hard should Everton be pushing to get Kurt Zuma back permanently from Chelsea? Um, and do we think it's even realistically an option for us to be able to get that done? Uh, to the first part of your question, very, very extremely hard. Um, it, it's easy to forget because of how well that he plays pretty much all the time, but Kurt Zuma is only 24 years old, which, which is kind of shocking to think about considering how many matches he has for Chelsea and Stoke City and in, in the French league before that. But you're looking at somebody who's becoming a regular in the French national team has pretty much beaten back every defensive challenge that's come at him over the season, especially in open play already has an established partnership with Michael Keane. I don't really, you know, I understand that there's a question from Chelsea's end, but I don't think that there should be a question from Everton's end. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that we have seen with Gilby Sigurdsson, with Richarlison, uh, a willingness uh, since Moshiri took over to overpay for players who are something of of known entities when they are obviously the player who fits what Everton is looking for. Now, the season, the offseason that we brought Sigurdsson in, obviously there were a lot of mistakes made, but I I think it's reasonable to say that Gilfie Sigurdsson was not among them. Uh, Certainly, obviously, when we brought Richarlison in uh, before this season, all the talk was about, you know, how much Everton had overpaid for him. And, well, I, I think that we can mostly laugh at those people and say that they're bad and maybe even intellectually dishonest, but that's a conversation for another time. And I think that now with Zuma, we see another situation where Moshiri and, and you know, maybe the, the rest of the, the management folks as well are, are probably going to look at each other and say, if we have to overpay, by, you know, 15 million pounds of what market value for this guy probably is to get him back. We're going to do it and we're going to do it fast because you don't find central defense partners who throw shutouts against uh, United, Chelsea and Arsenal uh, over the course of a month. They don't grow on trees. And when you've got it, you better friggin' hold on to it if you can. Now, obviously, uh, the second part of that question is, can you convince Chelsea to part with him um, <laughs> probably not because of the uh, transfer uh, the transfer ban that is is pending uh, David Luiz and Antonio Rudiger are not getting any uh, younger obviously Gary Cahill is uh, I'm pretty sure like 65 at this point um, so <laughs> it's it's hard to uh, to see a world in which Chelsea goes, oh yeah, oh, yeah. we don't need him back uh, if they are unable to add a new center back. But I don't know. I don't Chelsea know. does stupid just... stuff all the time, so I'm certainly not going to sit here and say we know for sure that Chelsea will go out of its way to retain Kurt Zuma. Yeah, so Rudiger is actually only 26, which I think is a point in our favor. But uh, David Luiz is 32. Um, we can safely assume that Gary Cahill will not be back. Andreas Christensen is is a good player, but he's also kind of made eyes at other teams in England and in the Bundesliga. There's there's a not impossible scenario where Chelsea are staring down the barrel of this offseason with losing one to two center backs and not being able to buy any more. And I think that's either going to make purchasing Zuma next to impossible or in incredibly expensive. 
Yeah, and yeah, know, I, I, I think it'll it'll depend on on the extent to which Chelsea might be willing to price get a gouge on him because they know um, what he's meant to us this season. And like I said, I, you know, I, I think there's a, Everton should be seriously considering overpaying for him if they have to because what this team has been able to accomplish defensively, especially defensively from open play, um, is serious, serious stuff. I mean, Everton's now conceded 44 goals this year, and only Wolves and the top six um, have better defenses. And actually, United's defenses is worse, too. And obviously, you know, the eye test says that as well. But, you know, to have the sixth best defense or seventh best defense, excuse me, uh, in England in terms of goals against when you know that there's such a disparity between the top six and everybody else, uh, that's the place that Everton needs to find itself. And they certainly weren't there last season. Uh, so to be there now is is a huge step that they need to be going out of their way to to replicate. Uh, I, I got a couple follow-up questions here. And the first one is, how much would you put out from what is the line that you draw for Zuma where you would say, you know, this is too much, this is too overpriced? I mean, 40, 45, 50? Allow me to – I'm just trying to think about who were some, some you know, bigger-name defenders – to move in the last year because I want to be able to to kind of put a, a comparison point on it because transfer transfer prices are broken net, if you will <laughs> well yeah and you know a, a player is worth however much the highest sure. bidder yeah. is willing to pay for him um, and for for Everton you know I think that you could easily let me put it this way I think you could easily argue that. Everton should be willing to pay 20 to 30% more for Zuma because he comes in as a known entity and a player who's fit in this system than a player with a similar track record to this point, uh, which I know dodges the question a little bit, but I, you know, I think it, it kind of puts a general sense of, okay, how should, should they be approaching this? So, real quickly to your question, um, Benjamin Pavard moved to Bayern Munich. He's 23 years old. He moved for 35 million euros. Eder Militao is 21 years old. A Brazilian center back moved from uh, FC Porto to Real Madrid for 50 million euros. Luca Hernandez, who won the World Cup as a left back but appears to be set to play center back for Bayern Munich, moves from Atletico to Bayern for 70 million euros. Those are those were the three big January moves. Um, you know, it's a little bit nebulous to compare Zuma to those players. He's got a, a a bit more top flight of experience than Pavard. He's got a lot more than Militao, but not quite the reputation as of Hernandez. But I, but I think that kind of that thirty five to fifty million range is probably where you're going to be looking at, especially with Chelsea being behind the eight ball as they are. And again, obviously, I don't. Uh... I don't have access to the checkbook, so I don't know <laughs> what the the willingness is is going to be. But I, I tend to agree. 
Um, and obviously we'll talk about some of the potential, um, other, other gaps in a little bit and, and the willingness to pay for Zuma will depend potentially on what you think some of the other needs are and how they need to be filled. But I don't think pushing maybe even all the way up to that, that higher end at, at 50 is necessarily something that Everton should stick its nose up at, uh, because like I said, it's, it's a big deal what this team has been able to do defensively, uh, in, in the last two months. And now my next question would be, because we do have two players who have performed, you know, rather well on loan here. Who do you think we need more when you look at it? Um, or who do you think would be, regardless of how hard it would be to get them, do you think it's act, it would be, if you can only choose one, Kurt Zuma or Andre Gomes? And if we're being completely honest, from my end, I think it's made a little bit more difficult by the fact that we don't know what's happening with Idrissa Gay this offseason either. And I also think that I would even put a further caveat on that question, which is an excellent question, by the way, that um, what is Yeri Mina? Um, you know, Everton put out not an insignificant sum of cash for Mina over the offseason, and I don't think that that we've seen enough to say he's been bad. There, there were moments where he went, oh, oh, I don't, I don't know about this, but to be expected with a young center back acclimating to a new, a new country, a new club, all, all of that. We just haven't seen enough of him to know confidently one way or the other. Yes, you know, he can jump in next season as long as he's healthy and, and be good to go. Or no, maybe he's not of the quality that we need. And, and all of that is assuming that he's going to be healthy next season. And I think obviously at this point, you've got reason to be concerned about his ability to stay fit. Um, but, uh, even with all of that said, uh, guys like Andre Gomes do not grow on trees, uh, guys who have the physical ability to play the high pressing system, to distribute the ball relatively well, um, who have the size and stature that he does, uh, if gun to my head, I, I probably take Gomish, even if you convince me that Ghana is staying over the summer, which I ultimately think he will. I, I think that what Andre brings is a more unique skill set than what Zuma can bring compared to potentially Mina or some other player who could be brought in. And that's that's the thing. You you kind of stole my thunder, which which is fine. Is it's just that. Physical athletic center backs, um, who can play the ball out of the back and kind of have an all around game are, are just much easier to find than your Andre Gomes types, mid, type midfielders. And th- that's really where I land as well. If I had to pick, it would be Gomez. Um, I'd really rather have both of them. If, <laughs> if Farhad, if you're listening, please, I'll do you some favors, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, you know, Yeri Mina, can if you squint hard enough, he can approximate what um, Zuma has brought this season. Tom Davis, James McCarthy, Kieran Dowell, whoever you want to say, they cannot do what Andre Gomez does. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I tend to forget a little. You forget a little bit about Yeri Mina. You know, we haven't seen too much of him. And again, like you said, Adam, we don't we haven't seen enough of him to say that he's been bad, but still haven't seen a lot of him. But I think with the factors, you don't know what's happening with Idrissa Gay. You don't know what's ha- or you have Yerimina. I think probably Gomish 
is a guy you're probably looking to keep more than Zuma and probably will come at a, a, a price tag that is probably going to be less than, um, less than Zuma. But let's move to the, uh, the situation that always seems to come up when the transfer window comes up. And that is the striker situation. Uh, and you know, Dominic Calvaluan clearly, you know, one up, uh, Chang Tosun as the starting striker. You know, he hasn't had a great goal output, but he's been, very solid in the way in the ways that Everton need him to be out over this long stretch of games where we've had a significantly better form than we've seen um, at other parts of the season. Does Everton need to go find a starting striker this summer? And if so, what qualities does this starting striker then need to have? I'm going to say no, but couch that in – saying that they do need to find some sort of center forward because I don't think that Tosin is going to stick around given the scarcity of minutes that he's had over the past six to eight weeks or so. I mean, correct me if I'm misremembering something, but I don't think that we've seen him much at all, if any, over the past month or so of games. And while I, I do think that he deserves more minutes than that, I also understand completely why he would be frustrated, and I understand why Marco Silva is stuck with Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, and I don't think that, you know, if you bring in somebody else in the summer, it needs to be another Calvert-Lewin type where they're kind of young and raw. Um, he, he needs somebody reliable behind him who can help him learn and who Everton can rely on if they need to spot him a start or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, to, to, before I answer, to fill out the, the answer about, uh, Schenk, if we go back to the Cardiff match, which is, I think, where we've kind of agreed the current run, uh, kind of starts, that's, uh, three, six, eight matches. Uh, he has played, he played 16 minutes off the bench against Liverpool, two against West Ham, and six against Fulham. So that's, uh, Eight plus sixteen is what twenty four. So that's twenty four minutes in the last eight matches. So yeah, it's uh, it's not a lot. Um, and, and I think that you know what we've seen in that time is Silva doubling back to I think what what we saw he wanted to be at the start of the season, which was a, a team that presses. Um, and that's fine. It's it's obviously been something that's worked for him for the most part. Um, so I think that. If Everton feels they need to find another striker, it, it probably it depends on how you want to view it. If you feel that Calvert-Lewin is not a guy who you can rely on as your starter in these games uh, against the bigger clubs, against the clubs that you know the, the press is going to be um, a big factor in, then you need somebody who can cover as much ground as he does and be as, as quick as he is, but also puts the ball in the net a little more frequently. If you think that Calvert-Lewin is that guy and can be that guy long-term, then I think, you know, I, I probably echo what what Chris says, that uh, I don't expect Schenk to, to stick around. But I think that at that point, and the last couple of weeks of the season will impact this a lot, that Everton may need to think about, okay, so we've got our type A striker in Calvert-Lewin, who's the press guy. But we got to find a striker who, when somebody sits 10 guys behind the ball, uh, is going to find the channel, is going to make something happen that we can break down, uh, you know, a deep line. Which, which the frustrating part is that's Chink Tosun, right? Like that, but if you're not going to use him, he's going to get 
pissed off. And at that point, you kind of have to start the cycle over again and find somebody else. And also, it does bear noting, I know you guys are going to be really excited about this, that Sandra Ramirez and Umar Nias will be back for training camp. <laughs> I, I really, I got to be honest with you. I, I thought we sold Nias. Is that really just a loan? That was just a six-month loan. He still got uh, he still got some burn left on his contract, and Sandro really has some burn left on his well, contract. Well, let me tell I, you. Yeah, well, it's hard to forget about Sandro. It's much easier to forget about Nias. I mean, Ronald Koeman made it a whole thing, but that's a different, different yeah. story altogether. Uh, <laughs> yeah, obviously not. And, and by the way, this guy. I think it, this show stands for Umar Nias, but um, talent-wise, he's not the guy. And I, I, I tend to agree with you guys there. And I, I think, uh, personally, I think that Dominic Cavalluin should be, uh, I don't think we need to look for a striker. I, th- I agree with you guys in the sense that if we are looking for a striker, it should be someone to kind of back up Cavalluin or take over that, um, that, you know, sitting 10 men behind the ball position striker. Um, if Cavalluin can't do that, I think, you know, Calvert Lewin's had a mess of things for the past, you know, couple seasons. Hasn't been a full first teamer completely. Um, has been playing right wing and striker and been kind of moved to all, uh, moved to a couple different positions. And I think definitely, um, it might help that he gets a full training camp, a full off season as that starting striker. Um, he fits the build of Marcel Brands's, um, transfer policy of, under 25, young player that they can have for the future. Um, and, and I think that he's shown us over the past, um, you know, past games that he's played. I don't know exactly how when, when he started coming full time, um, but I think he's shown that he can be that guy for Everton. Um, obviously, the goals we would like a little bit more of, but I, I think that he can be the guy for Everton. I think he needs that shot. shot. Um, to, to do that. And I think that this offseason should really help him with that. My, my biggest issue with Dom, who, who I really like as a player, and I think he's going to develop into something really useful and is obviously useful already, is that he just does not get enough shots for a Premier League center forward. And I'd be interested to hear yeah. Adam's statistical perspective on that. But the way that we rely on Sigurdsson and Richarlison to get shots um, for the attack seems like it's maybe less than healthy over the long term because everything good that Dom does is kind of countered by this fact that he just – the amount of chances that he gets in front of goal are few and far between. To speak to that statistically a little bit, um, so he averages – Per understat, he averages 2.42 shots per 90. Uh, Gilfie's at two and a half, and Richarlison's just north of that at, at 2.6. Um, so, you know, th- they're all a rounding error within each other um, in, in terms of the number of shots that they're getting off. Um, you, you do also have to kind of note that he is generating – he is generating – a lesser XG um, than those guys on a per shot basis as well. And I think that that is probably the the bigger thing is that he's not quite seemed to master the skill of getting himself into the the right position all the time. And I'm just taking a look at, at his 
XG chart on understat. And I, I encourage listeners to go and do this as well because you'll probably stab uh, something plastic into your eyeballs when you look at it because mm-hmm. – just taking a look, he has got four shots inside the six-yard box uh, in his Everton career that you would describe as in front of the goal. So inside the six and in between the post, uh, he has converted zero of them, which is, uh, I believe the technical term is bad. Those are the places from where you should be scoring. <laughs> well, it also, it, it's bad, and it also doesn't really, like, surprise you if, if you think about just watching Dominic Calvert-Lewin play soccer. Which yeah. is which is and not to disrespect him at all, because I think he's deserved this run of games. And I, again, I think that he's going to be a really good player and has developed in a lot of ways that you don't see young players develop. But there's kind of there's kind of an elephant in the room here. Yeah, and I think that obviously you want to see your striker score goals. Uh, you know, and I don't <laughs> I don't know if we've said that explicitly because uh, it doesn't <laughs> need to be stated, but I'll say it anyway. Obviously, you want to see your striker score goals, but if you've got a guy who is basically, you know, in a lot of ways, one of your best defenders on the field because of his ability to get in the face of defenders and to force mistakes that kind of trickle down the field and, and create those turnovers and those chances to fly quickly down the field, you don't need him to be if Richarlison and Sigurdsson can continue to convert chances at the rate that they have been, at least in games where, you know, the high pressing gets done what you want it to get done. Now we've talked, you know, a little bit already about in the situations in which the high press might not be feasible. And we can argue about whether the the rate at which Richarlison and and Gilfie have been finishing this year is, is viable. The underlying say mostly, Um, but the the work that he does in the quote unquote defensive side of of his game is going to be worth more in matches like the United match, like the Arsenal match, like the Chelsea match, than his ability to potentially put the ball in the back of the net as long as those other guys are are still doing that part. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're you're right you're right on there with you know his defensive abilities and what he does. You know, a lot of things we. You know, we've said this about, uh, you know, we said this at times about, uh, Tosun, but you can really see with Dom, you know, he, his pressing, his quickness, it, it all helps so much in, in with, in getting that ball back and then creating the counterattack moving forward. But, you know, again, at, at some point or another, you know, we, we've been talking about finishing all, all year, you know, how this team needed to finish here or if they finished there, um, or if they put this one in the back of the net, they should have, you know, Things would be different. And I think that's where, that's the, the one thing that is going to hurt Dom moving forward if he can't fix it and eventually may end up being his downfall is the fact that his finishing statistics and looking at him, you know, they're just not there right now. And not, you know, with all the things that he brings to the table minus that, you hope that he can figure it out. And that's why I tend to want to give him another shot, but you know, how long are we going to go on with this? So we have the right striker here. He just needs to figure this out, figure that out. Um, and, you know, eventually we just need to go and get a striker if that's going to be the case. So, 
definitely a difficult situation there, as it's always seemed to have been since Lukaku left us uh, at the striking position. And it bears noting that the answer, as we've seen from his recent form, is not playing Richarlison up front before anybody yes. goes down that avenue. Yes, you'll no. you'll notice that the first time this season that over a long period of time we committed to not doing that <laughs> is the best run that the club has had in I don't know maybe five years. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's definitely definitely not the answer there. But looking at other positions now, what would you say is one position outside of that striker position that? you guys think Everton should be starting to think about adding at this point? I think we've we've talked about it before, and uh, I'm going to lead with this again, and then Chris will probably yell at me for stealing his thunder. Um, I, I think finding your uh, backup Gilfie Sigurdsson um, is among the most important things that they're, they can do. Um, you know, Gilfie is really a, a robot in a lot of ways when you think about all of the football that he has played um, over the last five, five or six years, really, since he moved to Swansea and, and became, you know, such an important player. player and just to them. interrupt you real quick to underscore your point there, um, it, uh, among outfield players, Everton's leader in minutes played this season is Gilfie Sigurdsson, and it's not particularly close. And, and that was, you know, the, the case – that, that he was among the, the minutes leaders at Swansea and all of his time there. Um, and, you know, the stat that always got bandied about when they, when Everton first signed him was, you know, that he covered more ground than anybody else in the Premier League that, uh, that his last season at, at Swansea. At, at some point, he's gonna have to take a break or something is gonna break down. Guys just don't go for as long as he has. Um, you know, without picking up some injuries along the way. And uh, if, if he went down, you know, tomorrow, uh, I, I don't, I don't know even for three games, especially three games without Andre Gomes, but uh, even if Gomes was in the law, it was available. If, if he was down for the rest of the season, I don't really know what the immediate response would be. Um, and that's concerning at a position, you know, of that importance, especially if it's, a game against a team that's going to sit deep against Everton, who, you know, has Richarlison as one of its wingers and he can't play make worth shit and prefers Calvert-Lewin at striker, who's not, you know, going to create a whole lot uh, for himself either. And it puts a ton of pressure on Bernard, uh, Lucas Denier and Seamus Coleman. So I think for me, the, the top need, if we assume that, that they can, keep Gomesh around um, is is going to be figuring out uh, a contingency plan at that position. So you didn't steal my thunder because I believe in Nikola Vlasic, and I think that um, we can rope him back into the fold at Everton. My answer is going to be right back. Um, I do not believe in John Joe Kenny, and we have not seen him in quite a bit of time now, and I think that that may be indicative of what Marco Silva thinks as well. Um, Seamus Coleman, while he's rebounded very nicely this season and has not been a problem over this, this run of good form, he, given his injury and given the style of play that he has, which is kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, balls to the wall for 90 minutes, I, I don't know that Everton need to go out and get the Lucas Denier to 
their latent banes this offseason. But um, if Sheamus starts to decline more or, God forbid, that he gets hurt again, that position starts to look really hairy to me because Mason Holgate is incapable of anything approaching professional football. And John hey, you, beat, is, you watch what you say about the championship. championship. <laughs> he is dominating the second division. So, so someone tells me I don't pay any attention to that sort of thing. But people on Twitter have led me to believe that he is an amazing, amazing second division right back. So I hope he stays. Well, there. I tell you what, he's fast as all get out, and that's uh, really that's is. a that's a championship trait. Yeah, <laughs> but no, you know, I I don't. There's been a lot of talk about um, Crystal Palace's right back, Aaron Juan Basaka, who is absolutely amazing defensively. But as I, I kind of want to pour a bucket of cold water on that just a little bit, because if you look at his offensive output, it's not really anywhere close to in line with what Marco Silva needs out of his fullbacks as he likes to build in the wide positions. Um, Juan Basaka is kind of a destroyer from right back, and you can think of him as it's kind of a cheap comparison on my part, but in much the same way that Adrissa Gay plays midfield where you're relying on him to snuff everything out and allow the attacking players to to flourish, but he's not going to be a, a build-up guy or a production guy in the way that Coleman or Digne are. And so – in the end, that position kind of concerns me more than the the 10 does, just because I do think that Vlasic will be back um, and, and given at least some sort of opportunity in July and August. Yeah, I, uh, I, I will say on, on Vlasic uh, that I agree. I think his quality is more than good enough uh, to, to be in that in that position. And, you know, potentially if uh, if. Theo Walcott departs for I don't know what's the what's the MLS rumor that he's going to go to New England or or something I, I don't know there's some rumor connecting him to MLS yeah he's going to go to the Red Bulls don't worry about it <laughs> oh my God don't even start with me um, <laughs> you know it, it, especially if one or more of the wingers goes as well I think obviously he can fill in there even though his best position is in the center of midfield um, I just don't have any faith that uh, he is going to have any real interest in in returning to Everton um that is my my trepidation there nothing to do with his talent and if you know were it to be the case that you are right and that he comes back and is is willing to have a you know have a go and and try to stick it out at Everton then I would definitely agree with you about right back because I think Vlasic has the ability to to be that guy to to back up Gilfie uh at the 10. To uh you know, you guys took right back and and back up uh, 10 to go in a little bit different direction. We talked a little bit about it earlier. And, uh, you know, if Kurt Zuma doesn't stay, I think that we need to start. I mean, Jags is getting up there in age. We may have some players in, you know, in the U23s that are developing and may be able to fill in that role, but maybe even start looking for somebody just in case Yari Mina doesn't turn out to the – to be the player that we expect somebody to maybe fill in that role a little bit if he gets hurt again. Um, you know, if Kurt Zuma isn't there, then we're left with, um, a few center backs. I don't know. Um, I mean, we might have some, some center backs in the, uh, development, but I think just to, you know, change things up a little bit here and not go with the same answer. That may be another position we might have to look at, um, depth wise. But that brings me to another question I have before we move on to Crystal Palace. Should this summer be more about and, you know, this is, let's, let's go with the, the, uh, the, uh, implications that we'll, we'll say we sign 
um, Gomesh permanently? Should this summer be more about depth, or should we be looking for more people for our in the summer transfer window? I think, you know, the, the caveat that I specifically wrote in to the start of this question uh, when we started talking about the, the transfer window uh, really defines that. If if they don't qualify for Europa League, then I think that the, the focus is, is quality. It's first-team quality. It's trying to figure out, okay, if we're not in the Europa League, then the thing that, that we're going to be focusing on in, you know, uh, 2019 2020 season is going to be breaking into the top six and the key to that is really going to be figuring out okay how can we get the most talented 11 on the field in a way that that makes sense against most teams in the premier league because the talent gap you know even with all of the problems that we've seen arsenal and chelsea and united have um you know United's got Pogba, Chelsea's got Hazard, Arsenal's got Aubameyang. We need a little more top-end talent to be realistically competing with those teams for a top-six position. If and, we, yeah. If, the encouraging – go ahead, sorry. <laughs> if we wind up making the Europa League, then that obviously changes that calculus a little bit because you do want to be able to balance both. Um, but – if we're going to assume that we don't make it, which even though it's still possible, the, the reality is the odds are probably against us, then I think it's quality, first 11 quality all the way. The I agree with you, and I would say to add on to that, that the encouraging part of your point about the quality is there are more than a few ways in which Everton are already there, I think. Um mm-hmm. Particularly if they can keep Kurtzuma and Andre Gomez, which obviously is a big if, but uh, Jordan Pickford, uh, Luca Digne in particular, um, Richarlison as well. You know, there are pieces here that even some of the teams in the top six don't have, particularly at left back and in goal. And I think that's, there's something to be said for having that head start and having done a really good job over the past summer or so recruiting those players. Yeah. I think I think you guys are absolutely right about that. I think it's obviously a a, um, a question of whether or not we make the uh, Europa League. I think there's a lot of things that plays into it. There's a lot of ifs right now um, to kind of make that decision, and I'm sure that will all play out, and we'll kind of get a bit a little bit clearer of a message on that as we move forward here and the season comes to a close. But let's move on to one of our final three games. The next one we have to play against Crystal Palace before we wrap things up here. Um, and let's just look at them right now. Went over Arsenal last weekend. Palace secured Premier League safety for another season, um, which, you know, a, a good benchmark for them. And, and leads to the question, is that the benchmark of a successful season for Palace at this point? Or should they be aiming higher than that um, at, at this point uh, right now? Well, you know that, that they've got Wolf Zaha, who is uh, very good in case you haven't heard. Um, but when you look at, at the rest of this team, I, I think the fact that they have been more or less out of the relegation battle for most of the season and that they can now even mathematically kind of coast through these, these last couple of games without having to worry about um, relegation, I, I don't think that the ceiling for this particular group of players is a lot higher than that. I mean – the minutes leaders on this team are Luka Milivojevic, who, you know, 
okay. He's he's an okay player, not not a bad player, not a great player, not a bad player. And then you're looking at guys like Patrick Van Onhol, Andres Townsend, James MacArthur, James Tompkins, Chekou Kuyate. Uh This is an okay team. It's definitely a team that should be staying in the Premier League, um, but unless they're going to make reinforcements, particularly um, at the starting striker position, uh, and and in the midfield, both centrally and and on the wing opposite Zaha, this is probably a, about the best that that they can be hoping to achieve. I, I think. I think you're right. And the thing that frustrates me about Palace, just as a neutral who who wants those mid table teams to kind of succeed and challenge Everton more, is that pretty much every year, at least in the past, what, three, four, five years, they've done exactly what you would expect a team of their talent to do. And then they go into the summer and just basically from what it appears from afar, they do nothing to improve upon that. They're, they, they just seem satisfied to me to let Will Saha drag them kicking and screaming to 14th, 15th place somewhere in there. And, I don't know what their financial situation is like. I don't know what their owner's, owner's ambition is like, but it's kind of weird. Yeah, and the 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 big uh, move, big in uh, air quotes that that jumped off the page to me, just just looking at their roster, you know, in in preparation for for tonight, uh, was Cheku Kuyate, and like, there's nothing wrong with Kuyate. He's a perfectly acceptable, you know. Box to box, more hedging toward holding. Uh, box to box midfielder in the Premier League, but when you're looking at a team that was decidedly okay, I guess last year and coming into this season, Cheku Kiate doesn't really, you know, <laughs> move the needle. <laughs> for yeah, and they took that. They took a nice flyer on Max Meyer, who's kind of, you know, a washout in Germany, but very well regarded as a prospect previously. And they picked up Michi Bajwai on loan, who I think most of us like and respect as a player. But there, there just has not been that one move where you think, yeah, Crystal Palace really, they're really going for this. They want to do something interesting. Well, and I mean, we, we do have to be, you know, a, a little bit fair that they are managed by uh, presumably the oldest man on the face of the earth in Roy Hodgson, who I think, and I'm not, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, I think has actually been genetically engineered to do as few interesting things as humanly possible. Okay, um, now, I, I don't, you cannot disrespect Neil Warnock like that. Oh, okay. No, you're right. No, see, see. Now, the thing about Neil Warnock is that as a as a manager, as a, as a tactician, yes, he is very, very boring. But as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, he will, if he doesn't like the call that a referee made against him in a match, he will go out to midfield and just stand there looking at him menacingly. And Roy Hodgson would never do that shit. So don't don't come at me if you think that Neil Warnock as a human is not a lot more interesting than Roy Hodgson. Neil Warnock also wore on Sunday afternoon a straight-up polo shirt on the sideline, which I promise you I have never seen among Premier League managers. I've seen track suits. I've seen dress shirts with no jacket. I've seen suits. I have never seen a golf shirt on a Premier League sideline. So respect for that. Also, um, Hodgson is one year older than Neil. 
Just just the one, really. I guess it's all of the hate in Neil Warnock's heart that makes him look younger than that. I mean, that's how I do it. I don't know about you, but... (laughs) Yeah, but guys, moving into this, uh, the, the, the... Getting a little bit more in depth into the Arsenal Palace game. Um, Palace only had 27% possession through this whole game, but still managed to score three goals. Is that bunker and counter potential of Roy Hodgson's team worry you guys a little bit? Is that something that would worry you, um, as Everton go to take them on this weekend? I mean, I, yeah, but because we've not shown a propensity to be able to deal with the team that sits, sits deep against us and, as easy as it might sound to just mark their one good player out of the game in Zaha, he's uh, he's pretty used to that, and he's also, as Adam indicated, extremely good. And so I, I don't, uh, I'm not crazy about the idea of Zaha and Townsend hitting us on the counter. And I also think that, um, you know, Hodgson versus Silva is kind of an interesting matchup, in that you would assume that Silva is the smarter manager. And you may be right in a lot of those ways, but uh, Hodgson just has this propensity to get weird results. Yeah, and and I think that uh, I mentioned it before, and I want to definitely double back to it now. Um, Palace rolled what was effectively a a 4-4-2 in that match against Arsenal. And this is something that Hodgson has done a lot this year, where he basically, his midfield four, it's it's four central midfielders. um, And... In in this one, it was Max Meyer and James MacArthur who were out wide. Meyer, you can kind of maybe squint at enough to go, eh, maybe a winger a little bit. Uh, James MacArthur, if James MacArthur is a winger, I'm a Premier League striker. But um, MacArthur is closer to being a center back than a winger. Uh, yes, it's true. And no disrespect to the man who did score a goal in that Arsenal match, but my, my, my main point being this, that uh, they – they set up with Benteke and Zaha as as the front two. And I think the thing that really concerns me is that it's kind of similar to what Fulham set out to do last week with Babel and, um, and uh, Alexander Mitrovic. Now, Mitrovic, better than Benteke. Zaha, obviously better than Ryan Babel in this The Year of Our Lord 2019. Um, but it's it's a similar dynamic where Palace will have the option to again if they start Benteke uh, to to play to the big guy and and just try to launch balls onto his head from distance and break out of the back that way, or to try to play over the top to Zaha and let him chase balls in behind. We saw Everton struggle with both of those things a little bit um, against Fulham, and that's even before we start talking about how Everton might deign to break down, you know, uh, a, a back eight in Palace that'll basically be four central midfielders and then uh, the the back four that, as Chris has pointed out, has Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who is a very good defender, and, you know, other folks in, in Scott Dan and Joel Ward who are not going to jump off the page at you but are reasonable Premier League defenders, and that sort of stoutness has caused problems for Everton at times this season. Yeah, you bring up a great point there, Adam, and just thinking about that, um, you know, obviously those two playing off of each other, it does give you a little bit of worry about how, you know, that that 
that defensive back line is going to hold up. But it's also, you know, as we mentioned before, this is going to be, if that's how they do come out and how they're going to play against us, um, and it's similar to Fulham, it does give us, again, that, you know, opportunity to prove that we can play against a team like this and get a result. So, um, you know, if that's how it does come out, it's worrying for sure, but hopefully uh, they can show us, uh, Everton can show us that they can do this um, and not find themselves falling in another match that they probably in the end have the talent to win um, and should win. But before we move to predictions, we've mentioned Wilfred Zaha multiple times. Anyone else, and you may you guys may have mentioned him already, but um, anybody else on that team that Everton should be worried about heading into this match? I, 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 I almost feel weird saying it, but I, I have to say that, that Christian Benteke does worry me a little bit. And I know that that's a weird thing to say about a guy who scored his first Premier League goal of the season last week. Um, but the weird thing about Benteke, uh, it, it was the case with him last year and it was the case, it's been the case when he's played this year, he's getting into good positions and Guys on Palace are usually finding him in good positions. He just can't shoot the frickin' ball straight. Um, and the idea of him having come in with now a, a little bit uh, of confidence, finally having put the ball in the back of the net last week. Obviously, we've talked about that Everton's set-piece defense has been improved, but I think we're all also still kind of waiting for the inevitable regression there. So I, I think if... I, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but if, if Roy Hodgson puts out his, his lineup, uh, over the weekend and Benteke is not starting, I will probably feel a little bit relieved. And that is a thing that no one should ever say, but here we are. That's a good answer. I'm going to go to somebody that I've already mentioned, and that's Juan Basaka. For the, not, he doesn't concern me going forward much at all, but I think that's a really, really difficult matchup for Bernard. And, you know, Bernard's been in really good form lately, and he's done enough to really kind of quell the calls for Adam Lookman. But you look at Juan Basaka's profile statistically and just the way that he plays the game and how big and strong that he is, and it kind of starts to concern me that Bernard could just get marked right out of the game. And then you look back to Manchester United when he completed more passes and created more chances than any of the other attacking players, taking him out of the game would be a big problem. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, just for, for the tale of the tape here, uh, Bernard is listed at five foot five and I tend to any professional athlete in any sport really who's listed at five foot five is not five foot five that, that's a rounding error taller than than he is and I, I think bernard i think bernard wears wears the uh the youth shorts from the everton store <laughs> whereas juan basaka is six foot and obviously uh you know he is strong so yeah i definitely that's that's a, a really good shout that we have seen when you take the left wing out of out of the game for Everton when you take Bernard and and Dinya out of the game. Everton has problems creating chances because uh Richarlison is a creative black hole and that leaves just Gilfie Sigurdsson against a team that's basically gonna be playing for central midfielders, uh probably based on, on what Hodgson has done in the past. So 
yeah, it's it's something that could definitely be concerning. Yeah, both uh both good ones there, guys, and and definitely uh people to look out for. I honestly was with you, Adam, a little bit, and it's like you said, it's a little crazy to think about um uh, Benteke being someone to be scared about, but you know, that big center striker if he is in there, uh center forward that that striker if he is in there always seems to give me a little bit of worry with this team. Um and, and I think there's good reason to believe that. Um there's evidence there to back that up. So it would be interesting to see how that plays out if he does start. Um, and then of course, Juan Basaka always uh, going to be um, a, a great defender and someone who's going to be tough to go up against um, week in and week out. But guys, real quick, let's just do predictions real quick before we close things up. Adam. Uh, I, I want to say Everton wins. I want to so bad. I want to believe that this team has has figured it out and that they learned lessons from the Fulham match and that they're going to come out against a, a Palace team that doesn't really have anything of consequence to play for uh, and and get the job done. I just don't think it's going to happen, though. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to go 1-1. I think one of Zaha or Benteke finds a goal, and I just I, I don't think – that Everton creates enough chances to get a real strong foothold on this game. I don't think that Marco Silva has figured out how to approach these kind of matches on a consistent basis yet. I hope that I'm wrong because if I am, it's a really, really good sign for the rest of this season and and going forward. But I just haven't seen enough yet to make me feel comfortable uh, in a match like this one. I see where you're coming from. I'm a little bit more optimistic. I'm actually going to go two nothing Everton. I don't think that um, the Palace have the cohesive attack to deal with how solid Everton's open play defense is at this point. I, you know, Zaha is great. Um, he's more of a kind of a make things happen on his own type of player, which certainly works for him, and I, I respect that angle. But I don't look at that lineup and see other players who can create chances if Everton are able to keep Zaha out of the game for long stretches. I just don't think that they can get on the board while I think that Everton can. Yeah, I'm going to go uh, uh, sorry, optimistic. Uh, and I, I think I'm going to go with a 1-1. I don't, I don't know. I just I know something about this game scares me. Maybe it's just the Fulham, uh, the Fulham game from, from last week or, you know, you would think that after doing what we've done against top six teams, we'd have a little bit more optimism, but that wouldn't be the Everton way. I don't think that wouldn't be, uh, how, how it should be as an Everton fan. So I'm going to go with one, one, uh, a draw and we get a point out of it moving forward, but. It will be a good one to watch. Hopefully we do come out with all three points, and that would, like Adam said, be a very, very good sign for things moving forward. But, guys, thanks for joining me as always. You guys out there, keep on on Twitter, and we'll talk to you guys next week.